Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we find ourselves sobered by this book. And we see so much pain in your world and very few answers. But Lord, our understanding is so limited. We pray that you would open our eyes. Help us to see your presence in the world and your solidarity with us in our heartache. Teach us now by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Sisters and brothers in Christ, trouble comes in threes. At least that's what the old wives' tale tells us. Trouble comes in threes. This week I read a human interest story from England about Chirpy the canary. Chirpy's owner decided to clean the canary's cage with a vacuum cleaner. And when she stuck the nozzle in to clean it, the phone rang, and you guessed it, Chirpy got sucked in. The owner frantically shut off the vacuum cleaner and unzipped the bag. There she found her canary, alive, but noticeably stunned, covered with gray dust. In a panic to help the bird, the woman rushed Chirpy to the bathroom, held him under the faucet in the bathtub, and she turned it on full blast. The poor bird was knocked out of her hand by a blast of cold water. Now Chirpy was not only stunned, but cold and shivering. So the owner decided to dry him off with her, yes, hair dryer. Chirpy survived this threefold ordeal, but Chirpy doesn't sing anymore. <laughs> he just sits in his cage with a blank look on his face. If trouble comes in threes, Job is already past his limit. He's lost all of his children, all of his employees, all of his flocks and herds, everything taken in just a day. And the Satan, the adversary, doesn't think this is quite enough to prove his point. He wagered with God that upright and pious Job would curse God if everything was taken from him. And Job proved him wrong. Job sat down to mourn in the ashes, and he replied, Naked came I into the world, naked I will leave. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is not the response of naive faith. For Job, this is a deeply practiced conviction growing out of his worship of the sovereign God. God is in control. We must serve him even when things are not going our way. Unsatisfied, the adversary suggests another test. Skin up to a skin, he says in marketplace language. The value of a hide is up to the value of another hide, nothing less. If you afflict Job personally, 
physically, then you'll see the real value of his faith. This again communicates the Satan's belief that faith in God is only a kind of barter system. Nobody fears God because of who God is, he thinks. They only obey God because of the things God can give to them. Take away all of that and faith will crumble. And so it goes that Job, who has lost his family and fortune, is now afflicted with ulcers from head to toe. And interestingly, Job's initial reaction changes very little from his first act of mourning. He's already grieving the loss of everything. So he continues to sit in the ashes, mourning this new calamity with all the others, ominously scratching his sores with a broken piece of pottery. Enter Job's wife. It's often suggested that an additional curse on Job is the fact that his wife wasn't taken with everything else. <laughs> but Job's wife is really an easy target. She has only one line in the whole book, and it's not entirely positive. But for just a moment, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. We have to remember that everything lost by Job was also her loss. Those children who died were her children. Her whole world has been taken away from her. And now she has a sick husband on her hands. Some of you know what it's like to care for a sick husband. Mrs. Job deserves a little bit of latitude here. She looks at her grieving, disease-ridden husband, and she snaps. Job, why are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Why not curse God and be done with it? Put an end to your misery. Now most of us, if we're honest, would jump to the conclusion that God is against us if we break a nail, or if our football team loses the Super Bowl. But Job's wife is coming to this conclusion after losing her family, after losing everything they possessed, and now her husband, in the course of just a few days of all this calamity, is diseased from head to toe and dying. So her conclusion is not so far-reaching as you might imagine. Something is wrong. Job shares her grief, and so his rebuke of his wife is possible. On the sidelines, we should not be too quick to judge. Job says to her, don't talk foolishness. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and not difficulty also? And so in all this, the scriptures tell us Job did not curse God. The trouble with most of our answers from the sideline about the reason for suffering in the world is that they can't help but be self-serving. Our solutions to the problem of evil Tend to, be, tend to fulfill our limited and naive vision of reality without accounting for the complexity of God and the complexity of his world. Every once in a while, in a moment of weakness, I can't help but pick up 
a raving fundamentalist magazine, one that delights in attacking other Christians, just to see if I'm in there. Read it from cover to cover. It's the pastoral equivalent of reading the National Enquirer or the Star in the checkout at the grocery line. A few years back, I found myself reading one of these rags when, in which the editor was commenting with full assurance that Billy Graham's diagnosis with Parkinson's disease was a result of his sin in associating with other Christian leaders, Christian leaders of every denomination when he held his evangelistic crusades. He said, this is clearly God's judgment. And interestingly enough, this same editor noted in the same article that he himself had recently fallen down a flight of stairs and had broken his leg. The cause? Satan was trying to interfere with his productive ministry. <laughs> We're in a dangerous place when we decide that it's our job to interpret the meaning of someone else's suffering, much less our own. And so the story continues. Along come Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And like good friends, they came as soon as they heard of Job's tragedy. And they have come to share his grief. But this was more than any of them had anticipated. When they saw Job covered with sores, they hardly recognized him. They began to cry out, tearing their robes and throwing dust in the air as a sign of their solidarity in grief. And then the text tells us that they simply sat down with him in the ashes and said nothing for seven days because his suffering was too great for words. I think one of the most important lessons I've ever learned about pastoral care is the lesson of silence. Sometimes we Christians are just too chatty. We assume that when we're called to share grief with someone, that it's our job to give them the answers, to explain to them what God must be up to. During my second year of college, I was called to the hospital because the 19-year-old sister of my best friend was dying of some unknown respiratory virus. When I arrived, I found our pastor and assistant pastor already there caring for the grieving family. All through the, that painful night, we waited. And I noticed something interesting. The young assistant pastor chatted nonstop for hours all night about why God was doing this, about what good would come of it, and so on, while the older senior pastor simply sat quietly and held the hand of the mother. As the night wore on, I began to notice that family members would regularly go over to the senior pastor to cry on his shoulder while at the same time they were doing anything they could to escape the clutches of this young pastor. My senior pastor had lived long enough, had seen enough tragedy, having lost his own son at much the same age, 
He'd been through enough and was experienced enough in grief to know that there are no easy answers. And sometimes, silence is the best response. Nick Walterstorff, philosophy professor at Calvin, lost his 27-year-old son in a mountain climbing accident. And he wrote a book called Lament for a Son, in which he chronicles his own grief process. He notes that far too many Christians are uncomfortable about grief. And in their discomfort, they feel compelled to spout pious platitudes about suffering in order to try to make it all better. All things work together for good. Or just think of who might be saved because of this. Or maybe God wants another angel in his choir. Walter Storff said that what he needed was not answers, because there are no immediate answers. Forget the cliches. What he needed was comfort and solidarity in his mourning. Just sit beside me on my mourning bench, he wrote. In June, Serza Kof's book on grief, How Can I Help?, she notes that grieving people will not remember words spoken, but they will remember who stayed near them in the early days of grieving. And so for seven days, Job's friends sit in silence, sharing his pain, refusing to trivialize it with words. Seven days of silence and true friendship. Only Job breaks the silence. And his anguish is unleashed with a torrent of lamentation. He doesn't curse God, but instead Job curses the day he was born. Cursed be the day of my birth, and cursed be the night I was conceived. Let that day be turned to darkness, let it be lost even to God on high, and let it be shrouded in darkness. Oh, why should light be given to the weary and life to those who are in misery? They long for death, but it doesn't come. They search for death more eagerly than for his hidden treasure. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. Instead, only trouble comes. Job's Soliloquy is reminiscent of Hamlet's, to be or not to be. That is the question, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take up arms and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep no more, and by that sleep of death we end the heartache. But then Hamlet adds, in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil? Hamlet contemplates the end of his life. He thinks of suicide in the face of his own grief. But he's held back by one fear, not knowing what the afterlife holds. That undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Job, on the other hand, 
rather than contemplate suicide, recognizing that life comes from the hand of God and yet wonders about his own birth. He wonders why life is given at all to those who will experience nothing but pain and tragedy. We Christians find Job's cry of despair disconcerting. We often act as if Christian faith is a kind of stoicism where we're compelled to face tragedy with unflappable courage and insipid proverbs. But real grief always has an uncomfortable edge. When he was in his mid-50s, lifelong bachelor professor Jack Lewis met the love of his life, Helen Joy Davidman. Joy was a divorced Jewish-American poet converted to Christianity, former communist, with two boys in tow. And Lewis found a domestic happiness with Joy that had eluded him since the death of his mother to cancer when he was seven. The romance was exhilarating. It brought an added dimension to Lewis's already successful writing career. But the marriage was short-lived. Joy was soon diagnosed with cancer, and after a few years of painful treatment, she was dead. The bottom fell out of the world of C.S. Lewis. He was the best-selling Christian author of his century, an adult convert to Christianity from atheism. He'd already written much on the problem of pain and it helped many people through those long, dark nights of the soul. Fifteen years earlier, he had written, Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God shouts to us in our pain, making himself known to us. But now Lewis found himself drowning in pain. Unbearable pain and unanswered questions longtime champion of the reasonableness of Christianity, C.S. Lewis found himself once again struggling for answers. He picked up a pen and his journal, and he began to write. Where is God? When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, you're welcomed with open arms. But where do you go to him when your need is desperate? And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent in our time of trouble? Later he adds, not that I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. What's striking about these journal entries is the sheer honesty of them. This is what grief looks like. Naked, solitary, unrelenting grief. Some Christians read these words and find themselves shocked and horrified. How could a true believer 
write such things about God and doubt, much less put them in print for others to see. Betrays the fact that we Christians often believe that it's our job to put a happy face on every aspect of life, to give the world the impression that nothing shakes us. But the instincts of scripture are quite different. There's an absolute honesty about grief in the writings of scripture. Biblical saints don't hesitate to express their doubts and their fears, their grief and their anger to God. Because they all have a foundational conviction that God can take it. That God is big enough to handle our grief, big enough to handle our shouts of pain. In 1980, as the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre lay on his deathbed, he wrote, Despair returns to tempt me. The world seems ugly, bad, and without hope. There, that's the cry of despair of an old man who will die in despair. But that's exactly what I resist. I know I shall die in hope. But that hope needs a foundation. Job's cry, his outcry, is the lament of an honest soul. Why is this happening? Why am I here? What is God trying to accomplish? But Job's honesty is not without a foundation. In fact, his questions are not antithetical to faith at all. They're a cry of faith. Job is helpless, but not hopeless. And it's from the foundation of Job's hope that he cries out for help. In fact, if Job refused to ask these questions, there might be reason to worry. But we have to remember that even a lament is a conversation with God. A troubled marriage in which there's no conversation about the problem is a dangerous and doomed marriage. But a marriage in which the partners are talking about their pain is a marriage with hope. A recent study by the University of Chicago suggests that couples who endure an unhappy marriage and yet attempt in the midst of their pain to communi communicate about it are more likely to be happy five years later than those who decide to give up. Even when only one partner is committed to keeping the communication alive, the ongoing problems are often viewed in a new perspective over time. With God, a prayer that's filled with rage or hurt or confusion or anxiety is still a prayer. It's still communication. And at the basis of that communication is hope, a conviction that God knows what he's doing even when we don't. God is worthy of our hard questions. But usually instead of answers, what God gives to us is himself. The Bible isn't a book filled with platitudes about the answers to the problems of life. The Bible is a book in which God continually says, here I am. I am the answer. 
toward the, enter, en, toward the end of these grief journals, C.S. Lewis admitted, you can't see anything properly when your eyes are blurred with tears. Delicious drinks are wasted on a really ravenous thirst. And so perhaps with God. I've been gradually coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. Was it my own frantic need that slammed the door in my face? The time when there is nothing in all your soul except a frantic cry for help may be just the time when God can't give it. You're like a drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. Grief takes different forms for different people at different times in life. But it's the same Jesus who agonized in the garden, begging God, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The same Jesus who also steps into the room a few days later saying, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. The real anchor of Christian hope is not some theoretical solution to the problem of pain. The anchor is the presence of God in the midst of our pain. God doesn't always reveal his plan, but he does reveal himself. Elie Wiesel, Nobel Prize winner and author, is a Holocaust survivor. He tells the story of two men and a youth who were hung at a Nazi concentration camp. And all of the prisoners, including Wiesel, were paraded to the gallows to witness this horror. The older men died quickly, but the death throes of the younger man lasted much longer. Where is God? asked one voice. As the torment continued, a voice called out again, where is God? Basil says he heard another voice with an answer. Where is God? He is there. He is hanging on the gallows. German theologian Jürgen Moltmann says, any other answer would be blasphemy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.